Yes, so gracious God, make this a welcome place, but not simply because we are so welcoming. Make this a welcome place where your presence can be known. We welcome you in our midst, and we pray through these words, these human words, your living word might be heard, a word that brings life and freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a minister who tells this story. He'd be on an airplane, back sore, squished between two other passengers, brushing shoulders, polite smiles and nods. Mm. But he'd uh, awkwardly avoid eye contact for most of the flight. The whole time he'd be afraid that somebody would start a conversation with him. Yes, because he was an introvert and had hoped for 45 plus minutes of rest. I can certainly uh, sympathize with that. But the main reason is out of fear. Fear that he would be asked that question. What do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? And as a minister myself, I get exactly what he means. Because when you share with a stranger the fact that you're a minister, you don't know what kind of reaction you're about to get. Some people are very excited. But more often than not, things get even more awkward or tense than they were when you got on the plane. Sometimes they even get hostile, and it makes you want to pretend like you didn't hear the question in the first place. Maybe sometimes you do pretend like you didn't hear the question in the first place. Because one of the reactions we ministers tend to get from strangers when they learn about what we do for a living is for the stranger to tell us they don't believe in God. That religion is dangerous. It leads to hate, bigotry, superstition, and violence, or sometimes worse. And of course, my tendency in those situations is to nod my head in sympathetic agreement and just hope the conversation will blow over. Oh, look at the time. The flight has come to an end. I, maybe, you know, maybe we'll see each other in Toronto one day. I don't know. Uh, let's pick this up some other time. But this minister was obviously far wiser and more experienced than I am. Because when asked this question, he responded like this. Tell me about the God you don't believe in, he would say. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. And once he asked this question, pretty soon he discovered that those who react negatively to his churchy job do so for a couple of reasons. First thing, he'd find out that they had a negative experience with people of faith. Through their family, through a church, or simply through media sources reporting on things Christians were saying or doing. Their experience of Christians was judgment, control, condemnation, 
and a sense of superiority over others. Either they themselves had been burned by the church or they knew and loved people who were the object of attacks. Gays and lesbians, people of other religions, people who have fallen short of high expectations or broke rule X, Y, or Z, and on and on and on. It was the attitude and actions of Christians themselves that caused them to leave church or never consider faith in the first place and then to reject God altogether. Because really, who wants to be around people like that? And who wants to be a person like that? The second reason is related to the first reason. It was about the nature of God, who God is. God as communicated to them by these same people of faith. The God they talked about was always judgmental, controlling, condemning, quick to anger, violent, and jealous. Showing favoritism and showering one group with affection while damning the rest of humanity for eternity. Unconcerned with the plight of the poor, the oppressed, or the welfare of the planet. More concerned with punishing sinners than extending grace. A God whose concerns, nature, and commands not only shared the negative convictions of his followers, but, the one being God, but this God being the one who inspired their zealousness to begin with. They rejected God, this minister said, because of who this God seemed to be. Cruel, arbitrary, unjust, and self-centered. Because who wants to believe in a God who's like that? And really, who wants to believe in a God who inspires other people to be like that either? More often than not, this is the God people rejected when the wise old minister told them about the God or asked, them, asked him to tell him about the God they didn't believe in. And you know, this experience rings true for me too. This is usually what I hear from people that say they've had a negative experience with church and they believe it's a reflection of a cool, cruel and capricious God and so usually they just walk away entirely. But it also rings true for me, maybe rings especially true for me, because the reason why I personally refused to step in to a church for the first 20 years of my life is that I'd met some Christians, been friends with some growing up who had consigned me to straight to hell within throwing distance of our first con conversation. And when they did, it didn't make me want to be friends with them, unfortunately, although they had cool stuff, so I kind of kept being friends with them anyway. And it certainly did nothing to draw me nearer to God. In fact, it pushed me further away because this God didn't seem like somebody I wanted to spend time with either. And it closed me to the idea of God altogether. But obviously, things are different now, you know, Something's changed for me to be standing up here today. So what's changed? I left out, strategically, I left out an important part of the story about the minister. 
after he would say, tell me about the God you don't believe in, after he let people cathartically share their horror stories with him, he would follow up like this. So that's the God you don't believe in, he'd say. Funny enough, I don't believe in that God either. I don't believe in that God either, he'd say. And then he'd offer a testimony to the God who he did believe in and his experience with his faith community. And these were completely different than the God they'd rejected and the people doing the rejecting. And this is what ultimately changed for me too. What finally got my defenses down, why I stand before you today, it was different people, different God, simple as that. Today's scripture passage, I think, is one of those passages that presents the difference so clearly. It starts with two of Jesus' lieutenants approaching Jesus with a request. You've already heard of this story. You know how it goes. Grant us, they say, to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. They expect when they get to Jerusalem that Jesus is going to be made king, that he's going to be handed royal power and prestige. Basically, they've been loyal. So they should be rewarded. Like, kind of like, when you're president, Jesus, make sure he's minister of finance and make sure I'm secretary of state. They think following Jesus is a way to power, their way to get a piece of the action. They should get rewarded by their fidelity. And I love how the other disciples overhear James and John trying to cut a deal with Jesus, and they get mad. They're like, hey! They could be mad because they think the request is wrong, but it's more likely they're mad that James and John got there first. Because they too want a piece of the pie. The power pie. Power pie sounds really good, but mm, power pie. This shows the temptation for people of faith, one we fall to again and again and again. The great Russian theologian and writer Nicholas Burdayev gives this horrible account of saints who are ready to trample over each other getting through the narrow gate of heaven, stepping on hands and feet just to get in. And basically, we, like the disciples, are constantly falling under the temptation to believe that following Jesus is all about climbing the ladder up high, about winning power and winning privilege, pride of place, and a leg up over others. In order to get in with God, we are willing to condemn and hurt our fellow human beings to make sure we win the prize in the end, trampling over one another to squeeze into the narrow gate of heaven. All to win the prize for ourselves. We end up pushing others away from God in the process. This is the temptation for people of faith from day one. It's right here in the Bible. It's, you know, the primary source. But here Jesus reminds us, saying that this isn't his way. Like, straight from the beginning. I'm not making this up. This isn't a newfangled liberal theory about the Bible. It's right in there. 
Jesus steps into their little scrimmage and he speaks. You know how the Gentiles, how the Greeks, the Romans, the non-Jews, they control each other? How their leaders are tyrants who dominate each other? Jesus is saying, you're acting like them just right now. This is like somebody telling somebody in occupied France during World War II that they're acting like a fascist. Jesus tells them that they are acting just like everybody else. Those who oppress and do violence, marks of the broken world, they are thinking just like their enemies, and in doing so, they are contributing to the problems at the root of human existence. But Jesus says if they want to be his followers, they have to give up this way of thinking and acting behind. Where others strive for power and control, it is not so among you, he says. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. Their faithfulness as his followers is not to be measured by the world, but how they are to pattern their lives in response to become more like Jesus. How they can humble themselves. Where we are tempted to see faith and something that, as something that brings us greatness and power over others, Jesus says it's how we serve how we sacrifice ourselves and our own lives for the good of others. Not our own glory. In Jesus' eyes, that's true greatness. That's how we're supposed to be, and to be anything otherwise is a distortion. It's a lie. It's how we're supposed to be because, Mark says, it's the way God is. For the Son of Man, Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life for the ransom of many. Here Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, as that divine figure sent to manifest the will of God to the world. And he says that his followers are to serve because that's what he himself came to do to give their lives in sacrificial service, that because that's what he himself comes to do too. This is who God is, and this is what God's up to in the world, and how they're supposed to pattern their lives in response. This God is nothing like the God of popular imagination. It's a different God entirely, different God who makes different people. The minister said, I don't believe in that God either because that God's not the only option. The God we meet in this scripture passage is nothing like the God that so many of us have been presented with and have simply said, no thanks. So the reason I'm here with you today, the reason that I stand here today is because I don't believe 
in that God either. The God that I have come to believe in gradually, and in many ways against my best instincts, is the God we meet in this text. In the Christian tradition, we believe that God is most fully revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That in this homeless, first-century Jew, we are getting a glimpse behind the curtain of mystery. We're coming into contact with the love, the truth, and the beauty at the heart of the universe. That somehow, Jesus is what God is like. And here in this text, we see God as the one who comes to serve and not be served. The one who does not man the, demand the sacrifice or destruction of others, but gives himself entirely in ransom for the restoration, the recreation, the renewal of all things, and freedom for all. The one who refuses to turn his face away, loving his enemies to the point of pronouncing forgiveness on the ones who killed him. The one who meets our selfishness, our brokenness, our sin, with nothing but the grace of unconditional love. And the one who calls, inspires, and empowers his followers to do the same. This is the God we meet in this scripture passage, and this is the one I continue to meet over and over and over again in this church. This God is the reason why I'm here, why we as a church are here. This God is the God we come to love, be loved by, and serve week after week after week. A God who is good and whose goodness, mercy, love, and forgiveness rubs off on everybody who draws near. That's good news. That's the good news. And any other God is nothing but a knockoff, a cheap imitation. So, friends, brothers and sisters, strangers, seekers, and beloved guests, if you've been hurt by a believer, if you've been burned by your experience with church, if you've seen Christians behaving badly, who say they're simply following divine orders, if this is your experience just like mine, first of all, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that this is the way somebody presented God to you. But today, second, today I pray that you come to know that there is, in fact, a better way. That there's a better way, a more beautiful gospel. Because there is a kinder, more loving God beyond all imagining. So tell us 
about the God you don't believe in. And we probably don't believe in that God either. Thank God for that. Amen.